30 for 30 podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. Being safe on the road is important and no conversation about safety out on the road is complete without OnStar. For over two decades, OnStar has been giving their members peace of mind behind the wheel. Now, no one likes to think about getting in a crash, but it happens more than we care to admit. If it happens in an OnStar-equipped vehicle, you have people looking out for you. With automatic crash response, special sensors can alert OnStar advisors of an impact. They can connect to your vehicle, take stock of the situation, and get you the help you need, even if you can't ask for it yourself. And with OnStar, you have real humans ready to help, specially trained advisors on call 24-7. Because when the unexpected happens out on the road, the last thing you want is to be alone. OnStar, be safe out there. OnStar is available on Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac. Automatic crash response requires OnStar plan, working electrical system, cell reception, and GPS signal. OnStar links to emergency services. Limitations apply. Visit OnStar.com for details. Hello, and welcome to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. We're gearing up for our next full season of original documentaries, but as you know, in between seasons, we bring you conversations with filmmakers, bonus episodes, and from time to time, we like to highlight other work here at ESPN. So here's something I and a few of the folks involved in 30 for 30 worked on a while back with our friends at the website 538. 538 is sort of a data site that looks at how numbers and analytics are changing politics and sports and more. So we did this series called Ahead of Their Time, which looked at athletes who were doing things in their era that, through the power of modern analytics, we only have recently come to appreciate. They were ahead of their time. Today, I'm going to play for you one episode from that series that was a bit of a change-up about someone doing something really forward-thinking with math and analytics, but also about how it got really complicated and sort of depressing. This story is reported by Joe Sykes, who, as you will hear very quickly, is from London and is a huge fan of the English soccer team. He will call it football, naturally. And for decades, that English football team caused nothing but heartache for people like Joe, in particular by playing a style of football that was boring and slogging and just kind of depressing. This is the story of one way that style came to be. I really love it. I hope you do, too. From the series Ahead of Their Time, here's Joe Sykes with the story of Charles Reap and long ball soccer. First, I need to take you back to 1953, to London, England, which is actually my hometown, and to the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Elizabeth crowned the head of a great family of nations. Long may she reign. The coronation brought with it an upswell of patriotic fervour. The English had emerged from the horror of the Second World War and were looking forward to a decade of peace and prosperity. So June 53, I think, is this real high point of British self-confidence. Jonathan Wilson is a journalist and wrote a book about the history of soccer tactics. The war ended eight years earlier. Rationing was, was slowly coming to an end. And also... 1953 is a key year in terms of communication, in terms of media. People buy televisions for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. With those TVs, they were now able to watch live soccer for the first time ever. And they saw English soccer and they thought their soccer 
just like their society, is really better than everyone else's. Congratulations for Stanley Matthews and a winner's medal at long last are fitting rewards for the most dazzling sportsman in world soccer. Because you see, the English had this idea. Quite a lot of people still believe that England was, as, as the mother of football, was still the greatest nation. It's kind of an old imperial arrogance. The English team even played in a place that was called the Empire Stadium, and they haven't been beaten there for 90 years. One of the best internationals of recent years ends with England winning, despite another brilliant forward goal for Wales. England retire from the field, their record still intact. But then the Hungarians arrived. England in white shirts take the field with their Hungarian opponents at Wembley. A hundred thousand people put up the houseful notice as the visitors, recognised as the best side in Europe, immediately swing to the attack. Hungary was this champion team filled with some of the best players in the world. They'd gone 24 games unbeaten before playing England. They were the Olympic champions and they were also socialists. So you can see this as a, as a political clash, the emerging socialist world of Eastern Europe against the, the old world of, of, of England and Britain and the Empire. Because of that, the game was billed as the match of the century. And as usual, the English were in this confident mood. And within a minute, Hungary taking the lead. Didi Kuti receives and he bangs it past Merrick for a goal. Hungary one up in the first 45 seconds. Within 30 minutes, it was 4-2 to Hungary, and they just kept going. The Olympic champions now started an absolute orgy of scoring. They scored again. Seaball cutting in the outside left, back to Pushkas. It's a goal! And again. And although Hungary only won 6-3, it could have been 12-3. I mean, England were very, very lucky to get three and Hungary were very unlucky to only get six. And there's almost a sense in the second half that Hungary back off that they, they sort of think they, you know, we've embarrassed them enough. Hungary, the most brilliant team ever to visit Britain, shatter the unbeaten home record England has held in 90 years of football. The result sent a seismic shock through English soccer. But to the rest of the world, it wasn't actually that surprising. Because even though the English thought they were the best, they actually played a very old-fashioned style of soccer. Their idea of attacking was a fast winger dribbling the ball down the field and crossing it to a big striker who would whack it into the goal. There really wasn't much concern for things like tactics or teamwork. Hungary, on the other hand... Their manager, Gustav Sebes, believed that the football he was playing was socialist football in which every cog in the team had its role, whereas English football was still very individualistic. Hungary were like a whirlwind. Their midfielders swapped in and out of position, switching sides of the field, but they were all moving together, in sync, in the pursuit of a single objective. No one player has primacy over anybody else. It was much more, these are cogs in a, in a machine. This machine functions incredibly well because every cog performs its, its role and no cog is more important than the other cog. England were rigid and slow. The players moved up and down in lines, never straying from the position set for them at the beginning of the game. Yeah, the hungry defeat causes people to, to question everything. There's a sense that there was something just moribund about England, about English football, about everything in English life. Even their boots. The English team were wearing these big, heavy boots, just like the old boots they used to wear down the coal mines in the north of England. 
the Hungarians were wearing these sort of cutaway, lightweight boots, much more similar to what we're used to today. And uh, Billy Wright, the England captain, turns to Stan Mortensen, the centre forward, and says, well, we're going to be all right here, Stan. They're not even wearing the right kit. And, and this, this failure to recognise that lightweight boots are beneficial. Nobody even considered changing the boots in English football. It was just you did what you'd always done. And after that game, suddenly everything is open to question and open to change. English soccer was ready for a revolution. And there was a guy well-placed to provide it. Charles Reap. Charles Reap was born in 1905. He goes into the RAF. That's the Royal Air Force. He has a desk job. He's clearly quite a fussy, quite a fastidious man. He was basically an accountant in the army and a guy who was kind of obsessed with soccer. In the 1930s, Reap attended a series of lectures given by the captain of the Arsenal team, Charlie Jones, about the importance of analysis in soccer coaching. After hearing Jones's lectures, Reap began to understand that studying past actions could help you predict future performance. And that got him thinking. If you created a database of discrete events, you could actually start to analyse soccer games. So for the next 20 years, he worked at his desk job in the Air Force with this idea turning over and over in the back of his mind. And then one day in March 1950, he went to a match between Swindon Town and Bristol City. And he was sitting at the game and suddenly he snapped. He sees Swindon wasting attack after attack after attack. And so he decides in the second half he will start to take notes. He got out some scraps of paper and a pencil and he started notating everything he saw, every discrete action happening on the field. He started creating that database. He then invests in a miner's helmet because uh, a miner's helmet has a, has a lamp on the front so in a dark stand he can, he can see his notebook better. And uh, he, he then regularly goes to Swindon Games for the rest of that season. And with, with the light on his head, he, and presumably people desperately flocking to be away from him, this lunatic sitting there in a miner's helmet, he, he takes his notes and makes them more and more sophisticated. Picture this guy sitting in a darkened stadium with this old miner's helmet on his head with a little lamp on the front, making notes on these big sheets of paper. He even used his wife's table mat to rest on. There's something beautifully homespun about the whole thing. I mean, imagine what he'd done if he'd ever learned how to use a computer. I mean, it's genuinely terrifying. On all that paper, in pencil, Reap was writing down every action that happened on the field for hundreds and hundreds of games. He'd realised there was something wrong with English soccer long before anyone else. Every night he'd go home and study his notes and then, at last, he had a realisation. Eventually comes to this conclusion that passing moves are more effective if they have three passes or fewer in them. For Reap, this was a revelation. Teams can win soccer games as long as they make sure they don't pass the ball more than three times. It was his answer, the holy grail, the secret to success. I have to say something you might say is quite shocking. Here he is in a 1993 BBC radio interview. Not more than three passes. If a team tries to play football and keeps it down, not more than three passes, it will have a much higher chance of winning matches. 
Passing for the sake of passing can be disastrous. When he watched England lose against Hungary in that fateful game, he thought, this is my chance to solve the problems of English soccer. In those days, they played the soccer clips in newsreels before showing movies. So he went to the theatre over and over and paid the admission fee just so he could see those 10 seconds and understand the build-up to one of the hungry goals. And so for Reap, the Hungarians didn't win that game because of their lightweight boots and intricate interplay or anything like that. Hungary aren't the most effective when they're being direct. And being direct means playing long ball soccer. There are a lot of people who came away from the defeat to Hungary and thought England needed to pass the ball and keep possession, just like the Hungarians. But Reap arrived at a very different conclusion. England didn't need to pass more, they needed to pass less, and he had the numbers to prove it. When I see complex moves taking place, I hear around me people say, oh, what good football? I think to myself, does that manager know he's ruining his own team or what he's doing out there? So he started making the rounds, touting this theory to anyone that would listen. And he even started getting into arguments with soccer managers. Like a manager is there at the one time, that starts arguing about 1953 Hungry England. My name is Graham Ramsey, and I was friends, good friends, with Charles Reap. And this guy starts quoting facts. Uh, and Charles said, let me show you the records of that game. They said, I've got the 90-minute records of that game. And Reap produced this big folder with every pass and cross and shot. Just, it, it blew me away. <laughs> when he argued, he knew what he was arguing about. And so you better come back with credence and... and argument on top of that argument. But he was temperamental, and he always spoke his mind. He was a fundamentalist. Reap would not accept any kind of questioning of what he was doing. They didn't want to know him. Working the game out by facts and figures seems almost a corrosive attitude. So he was saying, you've opened your eyes. The world has changed. We're living in the, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Look at the amount of math in our lives. There's a view of the game which is entirely unwelcome to most people. In fact, the style of play depends largely upon mathematics. He became a crusader for analytics at a time when there wasn't really anyone in the soccer world who understood its importance. A couple of coaches worked with him in the 1950s and he had a bit of success, but this idea that statistics can actually win soccer games didn't really catch on. In a culture that was only just realising tactics were actually important, it's not that surprising that a guy who had nothing but notebooks full of numbers didn't get very far in trying to change minds. And then just as it seemed as if English soccer would ignore Reap forever... I'd never come across that type of football um, before in terms of tactics, data, the statistics. Easily you could describe it as... A little-known club in southwest London came along, and everything changed. Thirty for Thirty podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to three hundred cities around the world. That's three hundred cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. 
300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. 30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by our friends at State Farm. Whatever life brings your way, State Farm is here to help life go right. State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country. 19,000 is a huge number, but it's not the number that's impressive. It's the personal service and attention to detail you can only get from your local State Farm agent. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining the purchase of your home and auto insurance. State Farm, here to help life go right. All right, let's get back to this special presentation of Ahead of Their Time from our friends at 538. Here's Joe Sykes. In the early 1980s, Wimbledon Football Club was a fourth division team, way down in the league. My name is Terry Gibson. I'm a former professional football player for Wimbledon Football Club. I played for there for six seasons um, in the 80s and 90s. Anyone that knows London, Wimbledon is a, a nice part of London. You know the place where they play tennis every year and they drink pims and eat strawberries. But the soccer club wasn't quite so nice. I never had the fortune or misfortune to play at Plough Lane as a visiting player. It was a ramshackle old stadium. The training ground, training facilities were dreadful. And Wimbledon were pretty much universally hated. There were players in, in the team at, at Wimbledon that believed they weren't doing their job properly if they weren't getting yellow cards and red cards. Here's McMahon. Oof, Vinnie Jones caught him there. Now that's precisely the sort of challenge that uh, Wimbledon have been reputed to produce. I had former teammates of mine that openly admitted that when they played against Wimbledon, their main priority was, was not getting injured. That aggression and hostility went hand in hand with a particular style of play. In the early 1980s, Wimbledon played a pretty standard version of soccer, pass and move, and they were languishing. Then their manager, Dave Bassett, decided things needed to change. He'd learned coaching from a guy who was heavily influenced by Charles Reap, so he hired a statistician, invited Reap down to the stadium, and the next thing you know, Wimbledon were playing long ball soccer. That meant goalkeeper kicking the ball long at every opportunity, a defender kicking the ball long at every opportunity into the attacking half of the pitch. It meant midfield players taking at least the amount of touches as possible to hoof the ball on into the opposing half. They told me to pretty much switch my brain off and just do as I was told and stick with the system. I was brought up at Tottenham Hotspur. Everything was built around technique and skill. They were little passes over the top or in between defenders for me to run onto. But at Wimbledon, the coaches told the players they could only pass the ball a few times per move. So our, our approach to the game was from kickoff, we passed it all the way back to the goalkeeper, um, who then dribbled the ball out of the goal. He would then be able to kick the ball into the opposing penalty area. Up goes the kick from David Besant and down it comes on Fairweather's head and Sayer is in here. It's Sayer, good stop, Fashionil for Wimbledon. It's a goal! They're in front. Three passes, done. This was a style of soccer that wasn't based on intuition. It was based on stats. 
I'd never come across that type of football before in terms of tactics, data, the statistics. Easily you could describe it as football by numbers. Wimbledon rose from the bottom of the fourth division to near the top of the first in just a few seasons. Wimbledon go into the record books. A crowd of over 10,000 have seen a side who weren't even in the football league eight years ago defeat a team who quite recently won the European Cup twice. What a fairy tale. The club who only five years ago came out of the fourth division. It's a magic moment for them. Everyone thought they were playing simplistic soccer, straight out of the Sunday league. Wimbledon's cup hopes rested on just one tactic. Get the ball in as high and as often as possible and hope for the best. But actually, it was straight out of the statistician's handbook. And while Wimbledon were an extreme example of Reapian soccer in action, other teams were doing similar things. A coach called Graham Taylor worked with Reap at Watford, and within a few years they were at the top of the league, and Taylor was appointed England's manager. Long ball soccer was now official policy in the very highest echelons of the English game. The English Football Association even produced a coaching manual that advocated Reapian-style soccer. And this book, The Winning Formula, sells thousands and thousands of copies to, to coaches. Jonathan Wilson again. And it sort of becomes the main textbook at the National Centre of Excellence. And that's where promising young English players are sent each year. All these talented young players were being taught that skills and passing just weren't that important. The creativity was drummed out of English soccer. And the game ended up just like Charles Reap wanted it. Most goals were achieved by, it was something ridiculous, less than three or four passes. The statistics backed up what we were doing. Except it turns out that actually, they don't. One Saturday, Jonathan Wilson was travelling to cover a game. I was on a train going from Newcastle to Manchester and we were delayed by a points failure at Durham. So I sat on this train, reading, just going through on my laptop, a, a chapter of Inverting the Pyramid. Inverting the Pyramid is the book he wrote about soccer tactics. He's been working on it for two years and he's almost done. So he was reading over the chapter he'd written on Reap. And as I read the stats, it suddenly twigged in my brain, this doesn't work. The stats actually don't add up. Now, despite working at 538, my brain can't really handle even the most simple math. So to explain why they don't add up, here's Neil Payne. Reap's big error was that he confused correlation with causation. So he tracked the number of passes that most commonly lead to goals, and what he found was that most goals come from moves of three passes or fewer. Therefore, he thought that if you want to score more goals, you need to have more of those moves of three passes or fewer. And that seems kind of logical, right? But it turns out that it's also pretty incomplete because almost everything in soccer involves three passes or fewer, including moves that don't lead to goals. And if you look at Reap's own numbers, they show that if you try to move of three or fewer passes, you're actually less likely to score a goal than if you tried more passes. So the secret to scoring more goals was actually the complete opposite of what Reap thought it was. And it was staring him in the face the whole time. It was a real eureka moment and kind of, I'm sat on a packed train and I'm desperate to tell somebody, like, I've just worked this thing out. This thing has destroyed English football and I've just disproved it. And, you know, also wanting somebody to look at it and go, well, actually, you're wrong. Or go, oh, God, yeah, you're right. Because, you know, when you're having something like that, you don't quite trust yourself. But he was right. And in fact, Reap was wrong all along. The real lesson, 
that possession and passing is actually a more efficient way of playing was buried deep in the numbers. It just took someone else to figure it out. I have to say, I looked at this for like two years and then it suddenly dawned on me. Maybe those strands just never crossed in his head. This whole theory that had changed the face of English soccer was based on bad math. But it did work for Wimbledon and lots of other teams for a time. Where the players are less technically gifted, that is effective. There's almost a case of any plan is better than no plan. At least if everybody knows what, what you're trying to do, everybody's working to the, to the same goal. For a small club with a terrible record, it can work. But for a national team like England playing against some of the best countries in the world, it's predictable. It doesn't take long for a good side to work out. You don't really have any skills. All you're doing is hoofing the ball as far as you can up the pitch and kind of hoping for the best. Look at the the catastrophic state of English football in the early 90s when they go to the Euros in 92 and produce the most embarrassing, the worst performance of any England national side at any major tournament ever and crash out in the group stage having played abysmal football and then they fail even to qualify for the World Cup in 1994. We we, we should be passing the ball and showing a bit more skill and flair. And the referee has his whistle to his lips and Norway have beaten England in Oslo in the World Cup. England absolutely down and out. Reap's theories and the style of soccer they inspired actively hurt the English game. So why did so many people buy into what was essentially junk science? I, I think that Reap is interesting from a social point of view in that he's somebody from a middle class, maybe even upper middle class background, who suddenly starts taking an interest in football, who's university educated, and perhaps because of that, is more prepared to use abstract reasoning to try and break the game down, rather than the sort of intuitive gut understanding of a game which had predominated before. There's a scientific aspect, but there's also something slightly mystical about it. Here's this sort of shaman saying, I have the answer. And that's a, that's a lovely idea, the, the, the thought that there is a formula that will make you win football matches. I mean, there's not, but it's a nice idea that there might be. There might not be a formula for winning soccer games, but Reap understood there is a tactical advantage in actually understanding what the players are doing on the field. His friend Graham Ramsey says Reap was doing things then that have made stat-finding companies like Opta into multi-million dollar operations. I think if being alive today, he'd be driving around the Rolls Royce. I would defend him any day of the week. I mean, I just don't know anybody else on this planet that's ever done what he's done. And even though he was wrong, or it turns out he wasn't so good at math, Reap was interested in things that we talk about all the time here at 538. Here he is in that radio interview from 1993. The, the result of the match does not in any way indicate the true merit of the teams concerned. Reap encouraged the idea that soccer and sports actually have a lot to do with luck. So the actual score of goals is very largely a matter of chance. I think what Reap did was, was fascinating and has led to some quite interesting developments. There is something great about him. I mean, he was the first person in England to think of doing this, the first, first person to think that trying to analyse a game was something worth doing. You need something to be first, and Reap was the first. So I think he, he will always have an important place in English football history. Important, but ignominious. After England's disastrous performances in the early 90s, Reap was really shut out of English soccer. But that didn't stop him going to games. He'd still travel every Saturday to grounds up and down the country, 
notebook in hand, miner's helmet on his head. I stood with him at one game. My memory of it was him getting moved around by the crowd. And it, there he is, right in his notes. <laughs> I didn't believe it. He stayed the course. He stayed there for 90 minutes. Some people look at him, you know, what the hell is he doing? You know, should be taking his dog for a walk or something like that. But he just ignored him, you know, and moved on. And he kept sending his notoriously long letters to friends and managers and coaches he wanted to convert to his cause, however dead in the water it was. Dear Graham, when we said goodbye at Plymouth Railway... On and on, over 20 pages he'd ramble, describing in minute detail his views on the latest developments in the soccer world, his theories and notes on game after game after game, even how he spent his days in retirement. Worst of all, I got myself vaccinated for Beijing flu. Until eventually, the letter would just end. I'm going to fade out now from the page. The speaker is bowing out and good night. <laughs> That's Charles. <laughs> so he was very long-winded. Well, it could be. But you liked him. I loved him. I mean, he's a guy that had the intelligence. He had an idea that nobody else had. And he should be valued, not chastised. Reap came up with a theory that was actually behind the times, even though he did it in a way that was way ahead of its time. But his idea ended up draining the creativity out of English soccer. And for that, many won't forgive him. It's utterly depressing. I mean, the idea of a spectacle, the idea of putting on a show, the idea of football as some kind of art, I think just is lost completely in English football in the 80s and early 90s. Reap made the beautiful game ugly. I know how depressing that is. I grew up in the 1990s. I remember England's performances at countless major championships. I've seen countless English players getting outclassed time and again by superior foreign opposition. It's another wretched night for England at a major tournament. England have put their fans through the milk. Final score here in Nice is England 1, Iceland 2. Of course, it's not all Reap's fault. England didn't lose to Iceland because of Charles Reap, but his theories helped create a rot in the core of English soccer. And that doesn't look like ending any time soon. That's Joe Sykes telling the story of Charles Reap and English football. And let me point out that Joe reported that series in 2017 at the depths of his despair about English soccer. You can really hear it in his voice at the end there, right? But of course, about a year later at the 2018 World Cup, England made it to the semifinal. So maybe they've shaken those shackles of long ball soccer. And I can report that Joe is in a much better place these days. So that was from a series called Ahead of Their Time, which you can find wherever you get your podcast. There's episodes about Eagles quarterback Randall Cunningham, all of the Russian players on the Detroit Red Wings, the rise of the two-handed backhand in women's tennis. It's a really great series. Go check it out, Ahead of Their Time. I'll also say that since we reported that piece on Charles Reap, we've heard from a number of folks about what his rightful place in English soccer history really is. He's contributed a lot to the sport, and as Joe says at the end there, you can't pin all of England's failures over all those years solely at his feet. So if you're interested, I'm going to tweet out a few links with further reading about Charles Reap. He's a really fascinating character. You can find me at Jody Avergan. And if you are an English soccer fan and want to weigh in on the Reap legacy, be in touch, tweet at me, or email 30for30podcasts at ESPN.com. 
That episode was reported and produced by Joe Sykes and mixed by Tim Einenkel. I was the lead editor, and the Ahead of Their Time series was hosted by 538's Neil Payne. Again, if you want to listen to more of that, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Ahead of Their Time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.